as Barrington descended from the pulpit and walked back to his accustomed seat, a loud shout of applause burst from a few men in the crowd, who stood up and waved their caps and cheered again and again. When order was restored, Philpot rose and addressed the meeting. "'Well, now, is there any gentleman what would like to ask the speaker a question?' No one spoke, and the chairman again put the question, without obtaining any response. But at length one of the new hands who had been taken on about a week previously to replace another painter who had been sacked for being too slow, stood up and said that there was one point that he would like a little bit more information about. This man had two patches on the seat of his trousers, which were also very much frayed and ragged at the bottom of the legs. The lining of his coat was all in rags too, as were the bottoms of his sleeves. His boots were old, and he had been many times mended and patched. The sole of one of them had begun to separate from the upper, and he'd sewn these parts together with a few stitches of copper wire. He'd been out of employment for several weeks, and it was evident from the pinched expression of his still haggard face that during that time he'd not had sufficient to eat. The man was not a drunkard, and neither was he one of the semi-mythical people who were just too lazy to work. He was married, and he had several children, and one of them, a boy of fourteen years old, earned five shillings a week as a light porter at a grocer's. Being a householder, the man had a vote, but he'd never hitherto taken much interest in what he called politics. In his opinion... Those matters were not for the likes of him. He believed in leaving such difficult subjects to be dealt with by his betters. And in his present unhappy condition, he was a walking testimonial to the wisdom and virtue and the benevolence of those same betters, who have hitherto managed the affairs of the world with results so very satisfactory to themselves. Well... I should like to ask the speaker, he said, supposing all this that he talks about is done, then what's to become of the king and, uh, and the royal family and all the big pots? Here, here, cried Crass, Crass eagerly, and Ned Dawson and the man behind the moat both said that that was what they'd like to know too. Well, I am much more concerned about what is to become of ourselves if these things are not done, replied Barrington. I think we should try to cultivate a little bit more respect for our own families and concern ourselves a little bit less about royal families. I fail to see any reason why we should worry ourselves about those people. They're all right. They have all they need. And as far as I'm aware, nobody wishes to arm them and they're well able to look after themselves. They will fare the same as all the other rich people. Yeah, well, I'd like to ask, said Arlo, what's to become of all the gold and all the silver and all the copper money? Wouldn't it be of no use at all? It would be far more use under socialism than it is at present. The state would, of course, become possessed of a large quantity of it in the early stages of the development of the socialist system, because, well, first, 
while the state would be paying all of its officers and productive workers in paper, the rest of the community, that's those not in state employ, would be paying their taxes in gold as a present. And all travellers on the state railways, other than state employees, would pay their fares in metal money, and gold and silver would pour into the state treasury from many other sources. And the state would receive gold and silver, and for the most part, they'd be paying out paper. And by the time the system of state employment was fully established, gold and silver would only be valuable as metal and the state would purchase it from whoever possessed the wish to sell it, and so much per pound, as a kind of raw material like. Instead of hiding it away in the vaults of banks, or locking it up into iron safes, we'll make some use of it. Some of the gold will be manufactured into articles of jewellery, to be sold for paper money, and worn by the sweethearts and the wives and the daughters of the workers. Some of it will be beaten out into gold leaf to be used in the decoration of the houses of the citizens and of public buildings. And as for the silver, it will be made into various articles of utility for domestic use. The workers will not then as now have to eat their food with poisonous lead or brass spoons and forks, but we should have these things of silver. And if there's not enough silver, we'll probably have some a non-poisonous alloy of that metal. Well, as far as I can make out, said Arlo, the paper money will be just as valuable as gold, and the silver is now. Well, what's to prevent artful dodgers like uh, like old Misery and Rushton here saving it up and buying and selling things with it, and so again living without work once more? Yeah, of course, said Crass scornfully. That would never do, would it? Well, that's a very simple matter. Because any man who lives without doing any useful work is living on the labour of others. He's robbing others of part of the results of their labour. And the object of socialism is to stop this robbery, to make it impossible. So no one will be able to hoard up or accumulate the paper money because it will be dated and it will become worthless if it is not spent within a certain time after its issue. As for buying and selling for profit, well, from whom would they buy? And to whom would they sell? Well, they might buy some some of the things that the workers didn't want for less than the workers paid for them, and then they could sell them again. Yeah, well, they'd have to sell them for less than the price charged at the national stores. And then if you think about it, just a little, you'll see that it would not be very profitable. It would be with the object of preventing any attempts at preventing private trade that the administration would refuse to pay compensation to private owners in a lump sum. And all such compensations would be paid, as I've said, in the form of a pension, so much per year. And another very efficient way to prevent private trading would be to make it a criminal offence against the well-being of the community. At present, many forms of business are illegal, unless you take out a licence. Now, under socialism, 
no one would be allowed to trade without a license, and no licenses would be issued. Simple. Yeah, well, wouldn't a man be allowed to save up his own money if he wanted to? Demanded Slime with indignation. Well, now, there's a question for you. And what's the answer to that one? Well, there'll be nothing to prevent a man from going without some of the things which he might have, if he's foolish enough to do so. But he'd never be able to save up enough to avoid doing his share of useful service. Beside, what need would there be for anyone to save? One's old age would be provided for. No one could ever be out of employment. If one was ill, the state hospitals and the medical services would all be free. And as for one's children, they would attend the state free schools and colleges, and when of age, they'd enter the state service and their futures provided for. So, can you tell us why anyone would ever need or wish to save? Slime couldn't. Well, are there any more questions? asked Philpot. Well, while we're speaking of money, asked added Barrington, I should like to remind you that even under the present system, there will be many things which cost money to maintain and enjoy without having to pay for them directly. The public roads and pavements cost money to make and maintain and light, and so do the parks and the museums and the bridges. But they're going to be free for all. Under the Socialist Administration, this principle will be extended. In addition to the free services we enjoy now, we shall then maintain the trams and railways for the use of the public. All free. And as the time goes on, this method of doing business will be adopted in many other directions. Hey, wait a minute, said Arlo. I've read somewhere that whenever a government in any country started issuing paper money, it always led to bankruptcy. How do you know that the same thing is not going to happen under a socialist administration? Here, here, said Crass. I was just going to say the same thing. If the government of a country began to issue large amounts of paper money under the present system, Barrington replied, it would inevitably lead to bankruptcy. For the simple reason, the paper money under the present system, banknotes and bank drafts and postal orders and cheques in any other form, is merely a printed promise to pay the amount in gold or silver, on demand or at a certain date. And under the present system, if a government issues more paper money than it possesses gold and silver to redeem, then it is, of course, bankrupt. But the paper money that will be issued under a socialist administration will not be a promise to pay in gold or silver, on demand, or at any time. It will be a promise to supply commodities to the amount specified on the note. And as there could be no dearth of those things, there would be no possibility of bankruptcy. I should like to know who's going to appoint the officers of this here industrial army, said the man on the pail. We don't want to be bullied and chivied and chased about by a lot of sergeants and corporals like a lot of soldiers, you know. Here, here, said Crass. 
You don't have some masters. Someone's got to be in charge of the work, though. Yeah, well, we don't have to put up with any bullying or chivying or chasing now, do we, said Barrington. So, of course, we couldn't have anything of that sort under socialism. We could not put up with it at all, even if it were only for four or five hours a day. Under the present system, we have no voice in appointing our masters and overseers and foremen, and we've got no choice as to what master we shall work under. If our masters do not treat us fairly, then, well, we've got no remedy against them. But under socialism, it is us who will be different. It will all be changed. The workers will be part of the community. The officers and the managers and the foremen, well, they'll be the servants of the community. And if any one of these men were to abuse his position, he'd be promptly removed. As for the details of the organisation of the Industrial Army, well, the difficulty is, again, not so much to devise a way, but to decide which of many ways would be the best. And the perfect way will probably be developed only after some experiment and experience. The one thing that we have to hold fast to is the fundamental principle of state employment or national service. Production for use and not for profit. The national organisation of industry under democratic control. One way of arranging this business would be for the community to elect a parliament in much the same way as is done at present. And the only persons eligible for election to be veterans of the industrial army men and women who have put in their 25 years of service. Now this administrative body would have control of the different state departments. There'd be a department of agriculture, a department of railways and so on, each with its minister and its own staff. And all these members of parliament would be the relatives, in some cases the mothers and fathers, of those in the industrial service, and they'd be relied upon to see that the conditions of that service were the best possible. As for the different branches of the state service, they could be organised on somewhat the same lines as the different branches of the public service are now, rather like the Navy and the Post Office, and as are the state railways in some countries, as the different branches of the military, and with the difference that all promotions will be from the ranks, and by examination, and by merit only, as every recruit will have had the same class of education, they'll all have absolute equality of opportunity, and the men who would obtain the positions of authority will be the best men, and not you know, the worst as it is at present. Well then, how do you make that out, said Crass. Well, under the present system, the men who become masters and employers succeed because they are cunning and selfish, not because they understand or are capable of doing the work out of which they make their money. Nah. Most of the employers in the building trade, for instance, 
would be incapable of doing any skilled work. Very few of them would be worth their salt at journeymen. The only work they do is to scheme and to reap the benefit of the labour of others. The men who now become managers and foremen are selected not because of their ability as craftsmen, but because they are good slave drivers and useful producers of profit for their employers. Yeah, well, how are you going to prevent the selfish and the cunning, as you call them, from getting on top of then as they do now? said Arlo. Well, the fact that all workers will receive the same pay, no matter what class of work they're engaged in or what their position, that will ensure our getting the very best men to do all the higher work and to organise our business. Crass laughed. What? Everybody get the same wages? Yeah. Yeah. There'll be such an enormous quantity of everything produced that their wages will enable everyone to purchase abundance of everything that they require. Even if some were paid more than others, they'd not be able to spend it. There will be no need to save it, and there will be no starving poor, and there will be no one to give it away to. If it were possible to save and accumulate money, it would bring them into an idle class, living on their fellows, and it would lead to the downfall of our system and a return to the same anarchy that exists at present. Besides, if higher wages were paid to those engaged in the higher work or occupying positions of authority, it would prevent our getting the best men. Unfit persons would try for the positions because of the higher pay. Well, that happens now. Under the present system, men intrigue for and obtain or are pitchforked into positions for which they have no natural ability at all. And the only reason they desire these positions is because of the salaries attached to them. And these fellows, well, they get the money and the work is done by underpaid subordinates, whom the world has never heard of. But under socialism, this money incentive will be done away with. And consequently, the only men who will try for these positions will be those who, being naturally fitted for the work, would like to do it. For instance, a man who is a born organiser will not refuse to undertake such work because he will not be paid more for it. Such a man will desire to do it and will be esteemed as a privilege to be allowed to do it. And he is going to revel in it, to think out all the details of some undertaking. To plan and scheme and to organise is not work for a man like that. It's a pleasure. But for a man who has sought and secured such a position, not because he liked the work, but because he liked the salary, well, such work as this would be an unpleasant labour. Under socialism, the unfit man would not apply for that post, but he would strive after some other for which he was fit and which he would therefore desire and enjoy. And there are some men who would rather have charge and organise and be responsible for work than to do it with their hands. And there are others who would rather do delicate and difficult or artistic work than plain work. 
a man who is born a born artist would rather paint a frieze or a picture or carve a statue than he do plain work or take charge up and direct the labour of others. And there's another sort of man who would rather do ordinary plain work than take charge of or attempt higher branches for which they have neither likening nor natural talent. But there is one thing, and it's a most important point that you seem to be entirely losing sight of, and it's this, that all these different kinds of classes are equal in one respect. They are all equal necessary. Each is a necessary and indispensable part of the whole. They are all equally necessary. And therefore everyone who has done his full share of necessary work is justly entitled to a full share of the results because they were all equally necessary. The men who put the slates on are just as indispensable as the men who lay the foundations. The work of the men who build the walls and make the doors is just as necessary as the work of the men who decorate in the cornice. None of them would be of much use without the architect, and the plans of the architect would come to nothing, and his building would be a mere castle in the air. If it were not, for all the other workers. Each part of the work is equally necessary and is useful and indispensable if the building is to be perfected. Of these men who work harder with their brains than with their hands and some work harder with their hands than their brains but each one does his full share of the work. The truth will be recognised and acted upon by those who build up and maintain the fabric of our cooperative commonwealth. Every man who does his full share of the useful and necessary work, according to his abilities, shall have his full share of the total results. Herein will be its great difference from the present system, under which... It is possible for the cunning and the selfish to take advantage of the simplicity of others and rob them of part of the fruits of their labour. As for those who will be engaged in the higher branches, they will be sufficiently rewarded by being privileged to do the work that they are fitted for and that they enjoy. The only men and women who are capable of good and great work of any kind are those who being naturally fit for it, love the work for its own sake and not for the money it brings them. Under the present system, many men who have no need of money produce great works, not for gain, but for pleasure. Their wealth enables them to follow their natural inclinations. And under the present system, many men and women capable of great works are prevented from giving expression to their powers by poverty and the lack of opportunity. They live in sorrow and they die heartbroken and the community is the loser. These are the men and women who will be our artists, our sculptors, our architects, our engineers and the captains of our industry. Mm -hmm.